again, my name is Pastor Bill. If I didn't catch you the first time, I would love to meet you afterwards. I'll be right over by the door and I'd love to shake your hand. We're uh, about three quarters of the way through, not about, we're exactly three quarters of the way through a sermon series. And that sermon series is called To My Friend Who Left the Faith. Now, this is designed for people who have either been de-churched, meaning they've had a bad experience, they no longer come to church, or maybe they've never had a chance to experience the faith. And some of the topics that we've already covered are uh, they left, who's right? Ooh, don't need a new Bible there. <laughs> I preached the heck out of this one, right? Uh, they left, who's right? Meaning sometimes when people leave the church, we can kind of be judgmental and, and, and uh, not really provide an atmosphere for them to want to come back. Uh, the second one was I doubt it. How do you deal with doubt? Uh, do we avoid it? Do we confront it? Or do we learn from it? Today, we're talking about mean people, and then finally, we're going to be talking about why, and you can insert your own blank, but a lot of times, people are de-churched because they have why questions that they can't get answered, so I hope you'll come back next week. If you want to catch any of these that have already happened, uh, you've got our website, WebServe, uh, <laughs> that would be WordServe.org, and you can find all the sermons there. You can find us on YouTube, you can find us on Facebook, and you can go back and listen anytime you want. You can even speed up my voice so I sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks. It's awesome, all right? You don't have time for the whole thing to speed it up. Uh, so today we're talking about mean people. And when I talk about mean people, I'm talking primarily about people who are still considered in the faith. Now, here's the interesting part. People can call themselves Christian, but they don't always act like Jesus Christ. And I am chief among them. Or I don't know if you are or not. You're all perfect. I know I'm talking to the perfect church. But, but sometimes it's almost worse when people know that you're a Christian and they see unchristian-like behavior. Because to the uneducated, they may go, oh, you're a Christian, and that's what Christians are like. Well, you're not really different than anybody else I mean. Why would I want to be a Christian? Why would I follow this Jesus guy if that's the way that you act? And sometimes it makes us downright mean. And when I say mean, there's two mean-eens. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah, two meanings. One is just outright mean. You know what it is to, to like, mean people? They, they make you feel bad. But the other one is mean as in the mathematical term, average. Right? We, we become less than what God calls us to be. We become just average people that blend into the world around us. Folks, we're not called to blend in. We're called to stand out. And the problem usually comes when we try to stand out on our own. The way that we should stand out is through Christ and what he offers us. What he has already freely given, we can give. And that's what I want to uh, remind us of this morning. So I want to start with a, a little tale here. I'm making this up. But let's say that there were two people about to start a business. On the left-hand side, you've got the guy that is all about the ability, a really strong, talented individual. But here's the thing. It's all about him. He's not about resourcing. He's not about networking. He's not, it's just all me, baby. But he's got a lot of talent. Now, his competitor is the one next to him who may not have as much ability, but he's got access to untold riches like a bank account that goes on forever. He can access money anytime he wants, and he has access to the world's greatest advisors. So when the gun goes, which one do you think wins this race? Say, I'm setting you up, because you, yeah, yeah. Oh, why, why, whatever I say, he's going to twist it later. And you're right, I am. But so, so what I wanted to set this up for is this idea of we can try to do things ourselves, or we can have access to a lot of great things. And you can probably decide for yourself which one's going to win in the long run, right? But this has a lot to do with our Christian walk, and we're going to tie this all together. But here's the thing that fascinates me. As soon as I said competition, everybody's eyes went. Like, we love competition, do we not? 
And especially right here in, in this area of Fulcher, Texas, you know, if you want people to do anything, turn it into a competition. I guarantee it. I bet you can't clean your room as fast as I can. Oh yeah? <laughs> Does that work? No, okay, yeah, that, try it out. Yeah, now all the kids have heard it, it's not gonna work, yeah. But you know, like perfect example, we did the Super Bowl of Caring, right? We're gonna collect canned foods. Well, we divided it up into two teams and we had a competition. That was the best thing I've ever seen. That was awesome. We love competition. But the problem becomes sometimes that competition gets the best of us in our Christian walk. And what I mean by that is a lot of times I'm going to try to be better than you. I'm going to look more like Jesus than you. And when I do that, I often try to do that by, by putting on a, a false face, by putting on the mask, by saying all the right words but not doing all the right things. See, it's a competition, isn't it? Who can most look like Jesus? But people see through that. And I guarantee you, God sees through that. So there's got to be a better way. One of the best uh, examples I have of this is uh, this right here. I was watching uh, a YouTube clip the other day, and it was this guy that, I mean, he, he was in a, a room of guys, and he got up and just started wailing like, like, you know, his best friend just died or something. I was like, oh, my Lord, what's happening here? And it pans over to the TV, and he's in a fantasy football league, and Aaron Rodgers' injury report was coming up on the TV. <laughs> So he, he was that upset because his fantasy football quarterback was Aaron Rodgers. And if you don't know, he had a really bad injury last week, and he's going to be out for a while. So if you have him on your team, you're basically done, right? You're, good luck finding another quarterback for your team. But this guy was absolutely devastated. And I thought, my Lord, if this devastates you, how do you ever stand up to the real world out there? Because there's real things out there happening. I mean, not that Aaron Rodgers' injury isn't real. I pray for him. You know, I hope he heals. But really? That's what we've got to be concerned about. It's a competition, folks. Everything's a competition. And if it's not, we'll make it one. But there's got to be a better way. There's even a competition in the spiritual world when we see Peter asking Jesus this question that we're going to read about today. The setting of this is uh, Peter is talking, or excuse me, Jesus is talking with the disciples. And what predicates all of this is uh, Peter's simple question about forgiveness. Because apparently Peter had been in a situation where he was required to forgive someone. And so he's asking, how do I do this? How many times do I do this? And Jesus gives him some advice that still sticks today. So we're going to pick up in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And these are the words of God for the people of God. And for these words, we are grateful. So I don't know if you, you catch the biblical, biblicies, is that a word? The Bible speak. So Peter is coming to me and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven? And seven in the Bible is the, is the perfect number. It's the number of completion. So Peter is trying to get extra credit with the teacher. Shall I forgive perfectly? That's basically what he's saying, right? And then Jesus, in the way that only Jesus can go back and says, no, you should give double perfectly, <laughs> right? That's what's going on here. Jesus is upping the ante almost to an impossible standard because who can give double perfectly? Well, Jesus, but who else can give double perfectly? No one can. And so how is this even possible? And then in the way that only Jesus can do, he tells a story because that's what Jesus does. So rather than read this entire parable, I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. And it's the, called the parable of the unmerciful servant. 
So let me walk through it with you here briefly. It's contained in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Now, here's how the story goes. There was this guy, and he owed the king a lot of money. So, uh, whoops, thought I thought I blotted that one. <laughs> here we go. So he owed 10,000 talents to the king. Now, it's easy to read this parable and not understand what the money was like back then and go, oh, he owed money, and then another guy owed money, and then they had this thing. Now, let's break this down. Let's unpack this a little bit. I want you to understand what's going on here. So he owed the king 10,000 talents. Well, one talent, one talent was 10 to 15 years of a wage. So take your annual salary when, when you're in your most productive time, multiply it by 20. And that's what this guy owes this king. Now, if you want to break it down even further than that, that works out to about 150,000 years of annual income to repay that debt. Is that possible? No, and that's Jesus' point. Jesus always talks in hyperbole. He always takes the maximum that he can to prove his point. So this guy owes 150,000 years of his annual income to repay this debt that he stands before the king. And what's the king's solution? Well, he's got a great one. I'll tell you what, I'm going to take you, your wife, and your kids, and I'm going to sell you to repay your debt. How's that sound? I hope everybody says not good, right? That's terrible. And so this guy does what any normal person would do. He pleads with the king. And, and I want to read these words exactly. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. Now, that's not exactly the most inspiring speech I've ever heard. Like, I would have thrown in some emotional pleas. I would have, you know, brought my kids out and say, how could you do that? He just, that's all he says. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. And what's the king do? He forgives him. No problem. I just wiped away 150,000 years of your annual income that you owe me. Go be free. Go do you. How would you feel if that happened to you? Wouldn't that be the most amazing feeling ever? Like, a, I just feel like the weight of the world has been taken off of me. So what does this guy do? He goes out and he realizes, okay, well, maybe, it, maybe he means that. Maybe I'm free or maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's going to still want that. So I still got to do what I've been doing. Now, my first question is, what did he do to get 150,000 years in debt? I mean, that, you have to do some serious stuff. But he's had this encounter with grace with the king, and then what does he do when he goes back out? Right back to what he was doing. Now, wouldn't that change you? I would hope that that would change me if somebody had forgiven me that greatly. I hope that would change my whole perspective. But this guy goes right back to what he was doing. He encounters a guy who owes him money. Now, this is where it gets interesting because let's, let's do the whole math thing again here just a second. This guy owed the guy who had been forgiven 100 denarii. Now, these are silver coins, not gold coins like the others. One denarii equals one day's wage. So in other words, this guy owes a little over three months of wage compared to 150,000 years. Do you get the, the, the difference here? And so what does this guy do? The, the guy who was forgiven encounters this guy, and what does he do? This second guy who owes this 100 denarii says this, and I quote, be patient with me, I will pay you back. Those words sound familiar? It's the same inspiring speech that the other guy had just given the king, and the king had forgiven 150,000 years of annual debt. This guy says it for three months wages, and what does this guy do? Anybody know the parable? 
It's, it's one of the earliest recorded examples of jujitsu in the Bible. He choked him out. That is jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> Slap bump, my friends, right? <laughs> Literally, it says, right, I'm not making this up. You can read it for yourself. He choked him out. He, he, was, he was physically taking him to business here. And it gets worse because then he gets thrown in debtor's prison. Now, this is always the thing that fascinates me about debtor's prison. If somebody owes me money, why would I throw them in prison? How are they going to pay me back? This makes no sense. But this is the way it was. You get thrown into debtor's prison, and you generally had to do hard labor, and then you got credit. Or more commonly, you had to try to find someone to pay your debt off. Yeah, good luck with that. So this guy who owed a little over three months' wages, I'll wager that he had a wife and kids he was probably trying to take care of, just like the other guy. But this guy was not relenting at all. Despite being forgiven so much, he could not find it in himself to forgive this little debt. And he was making it pretty miserable. Well, story doesn't end there, because guess what? People see this, people hear this, people report back to guess who? The king. And the king calls him in, calls the first guy in who he had forgiven 150,000 years of annual debt and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you. How could you do this? And, and guess what happens? He gets handed over to jailers and tortured until he could pay what he owed. What did he owe? 150,000 years of wages. He's going to be in jail and tortured until he pays that off. How do, when's that going to happen? Never. That sounds like an eternity. And so Jesus, you know Jesus. He tells a good story, but he always tells a true story. Doesn't that sound like an eternity in hell? Jail, being tortured until you can pay it back, a debt you can't possibly pay. Don't miss the meaning here. And what is all of this predicated on? Forgiveness, mercy. Jesus is very clear about this. In fact, it's kind of scary sometimes. This is the part that scares me the most, is the end of this story. Because Jesus always tells a good story, but it always ends with some takeaway and generally, it's either a question or like a sentence like this that ought to just make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And here's what he says. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And what's he talking about, how he'd be treated? Oh, yeah, the guy that got thrown in jail and will be tortured until he pays back what he owes. That's how the, my father will treat you unless, unless what? You forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, this begs the question, how do I forgive my brother or sister from my heart? I think that's the most important question that we have today based on what I'm hearing. I don't want to be there in that jail for eternity being tortured. I'd, I'd rather be in the good graces of the king, the freedom of being forgiven. That's where I want to be. So we got to answer this question. How do I forgive a brother or sister from my heart? Well, in the old days, the heart was the center of all things. If you were into the heart, that was the core of the person, the absolute belief, everything in total, uh, that person. So when God gives you a command like, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, notice which one comes first, the heart. If you get the heart, you got the rest. It, it will flow from there. It rarely goes from the mind to the heart. Uh, it rarely goes from anything else to the heart. It usually starts from the heart and spreads out. So that's why he's targeting the heart in his love for him and forgiving from our heart. 
So if I love the Lord my God with all my heart, that means there is no room for anything else there. I, I am so in tune with God. I am so wanting to walk with him. And, and here's the key word, wanting to walk with him, that nothing else has room to get in. That's why he uses the word love, because he could say, I will make you follow me. And by golly, you will toe the line. Just like I'll make you clean your room. How does that work? Now, don't answer that. I already know. Right? But what he has already done for us is the whole key. And what has he already done for us? Well, he's paid a debt that we couldn't possibly pay for his son, Jesus Christ, on a hill called Calvary. Have you heard the story? I'd love to tell you. But here's the thing. We all have a debt that we cannot possibly pay, but it has already been paid. The question is not, is it paid? The question is, what do we do with that? Now, this is where it gets tough because these, this brother and sister that he's talking about, that's us. That's you and me. And you and me, uh, I hate to break it to you, spoiler alert, we're not Jesus Christ. We're not perfect. We're people. We live in a fallen, broken world, and we're fallen, broken people. So sometimes we do things that upset each other. Sometimes I do things that might require forgiveness from you. Okay, all the time. I do things that require forgiveness from you. And sometimes when people come to a church and they see people who call themselves Christian do unchristian things, they go, oh, I'm just writing that off. And that includes people who are in the church. I, I would like to tell you that this is not true, but I can tell you almost, I don't know how many examples per year where I see people inside the church find a problem with another person to the extent that it causes a hiccup in their walk in faith. Sometimes even to the extent where they stop coming to church altogether because of that person. That's not what we're called to. Here's the thing about forgiveness. If you want to get really good at something, what do you do? You practice. So if you want to get really good at forgiveness, what should you do? Practice. Guess what? God gives us a gym right here, a gym of forgiveness. So if you want to practice forgiveness, God is going to put somebody in your path that causes them to do something that will require you to forgive them. That's how you get better at it. Is it fun? Not always. But I'll tell you, every time that I've experimented with this, at the end of this trail of forgiveness, it's better than ever. It's almost like that broken bone, you know, that heals stronger than it ever has before. That relationship that has been tarnished through forgiveness can be stronger than it's ever been. But so often we look at the ugliness of that and we never approach that forgiveness. We just walk away. We leave the wound untreated and unhealed. That's not going to be stronger. That's just going to separate. I don't, I don't know if you've read about this idea of the early church, but we're not called to separate. We're called to come together. We're called to be one. In fact, Jesus talks to his disciples, the way that the world will know who I am and that I, I, am, I am who I say I am is by our unity, by our ability to come together. But Bill, you just said that we're all not Jesus Christ and we do ugly things to each other. Yes, that's true. So how do we get to that unity? Forgiveness. Even if it's 150,000 years of annual wage that someone owes you, it can't compare to what Jesus has done on the cross at Calvary. My point being, and Jesus, more importantly, point being, you have been given a great gift. We have been forgiven a great debt that we couldn't possibly pay. 
Why would we be so stingy in offering that grace to someone else? Why would we exact three months wages from our brother or sister? There's, there's no good reason to do that. So the only thing I can figure is, well, that's, that's when I'm least Christ-like. That's when I slip away from loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I let something else into my heart that just starts to eat. And it can be a, a little tiny thing, like yeast, you know, like, like a, a small thing. But left untreated, it continues to grow. And it continues to take over my heart until the point that I don't see anything else. At that point, forgiveness gets a lot harder. Not impossible, but a lot harder. But why wait? Why don't we do it instantly? Why don't we do it, I don't know, before the sun goes down? There's, there's words about that in the Bible. So we've got to learn to forgive from the heart. And you say, Bill, I can't possibly do that. I, 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 it's not in me. You know what I say to that? When you've been uh, insulted or affronted so much that you cannot possibly in your heart forgive, you know what I say to that? Good. <laughs> Bill, you're sick. I know. But here's why. <laughs> here's why. Good, because it's not up to you. You have to draw from that bank account of forgiveness that is far greater than you are because I don't have it in me. And I'm not the guy to stand up in front of you and say, I'm perfect, I do this all the time, and I've forgiven everyone of everything ever. Now, I still struggle. I struggle every day with some aspect of forgiveness, some aspect of mercy. But the point is we don't give up on that. We continue to try. We, we continue to experiment with what does it look like not to forgive with what I've got to offer, but to forgive with what he's got to offer. It's much, much greater than anything I can put out there. And it's that connection, that loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what it calls me back to, because that's where I have access to forgiveness that goes forever and every mercy that is new every morning. That sounds familiar. Now. When we talk about this question of the day, how do I forgive from the heart? That is the one takeaway I want you to get from this, this talk together. How do I forgive from the heart? I've given you a broad 50,000-foot view of what that looks like. You have access to untold forgiveness. You have access to untold mercy. It is endless. It is new every morning. But how do you do that? That's where it gets individual. I can't tell you exactly how you would do that because I don't live in your world. I've not been insulted by the things that insult you. I've not been affronted by the things that affront you. But I promise this, I will walk beside you in that and help you find out how you forgive from the heart. Now, there's one of me and there's many of you. So here's a better idea. What if we got together in groups and talked about this? What if we got together and experimented in ways that we might forgive, got feedback from brothers and sisters, studied the scripture, prayed, learned? That would be way, way better. Can you tell I'm a big fan of community groups? That's my unashamed plug for try to get into a community group or immerse group, something. But don't let this question go by and not think about it. Think about it to the point of application, not just knowledge. How do I do this? So I'm going to go back to the race. We got one ability. We got one with access to untold things. Now, in the parable of the unmerciful servant, it's pretty easy to see. The one with ability is the one who also happens to owe 
150,000 years of annual wage. He's not, he's not networked, he's not resourced. He's out of luck, is what he is. As compared to someone who might have access to untold riches and the world's best advisors ever. Which one wins the race? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> I love it. There's another softball across the plate, right? Jesus wins the race, yeah. You would think that the person with access runs the race, but bad news, that's not true. See, because I have, I have set you up as I promised I would, there's a third party, and it's the one who takes action. So you can have access to all the riches in the world. You can have access to the best advisors. You can have access to all of that. But until you take action and put that into practice, it's meaningless. It's like a big blob of potential energy that has no movement and no result. It's the people who take Jesus' words and put it into action. It's the people who take the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers us and put it into action. It's the people who take the advice that is found written in these pages and put it into action that win this race. And what do we end, or what do we win at the end of the race? Well, we win unity. We, we earn the right to be called disciples of Christ and represent to the world what a disciple of Christ looks like. And suddenly, a disciple of Christ aren't those mean people that are always fighting with each other and doing unchristlike things. Suddenly, these people are experts at forgiveness, and they find ways to get under, over, through, with forgiveness, and still maintain unity. Now, that is a miracle, people. And the only way that works is if Jesus Christ is in it. So this is the good news of this. If our heart is in a place where we can forgive with the resources that Christ gives, that tells me something about your heart. It tells me that your heart is fully aligned with Christ. It tells me that your heart is alive with the Spirit of Christ, and you have totally surrendered to whatever it is that he has for you. And in that, I have great hope for unity as I look out here. I have great hope for unity not just here, but in the way that we go out into our work and our school and our relationships. That unity virus begins to spread as people go, oh, wow, how did you get by that? How can you have these terrible things happen and yet forgive? How can you still seek unity in the face of everything that's happened? By the grace of God, that's how. That is a miracle. Now, I have to put a caveat in here, because a lot of times when people hear me say this, you should forgive with the... the the love of Jesus Christ, it's not to excuse bad behavior. It's not to condone bad behavior. It's not to repeatedly put yourself at risk with something that's dangerous, right? I forgive you, but I'm sure not going to get in a room with you until you settle down or get some anger management. I'll forgive you, but I'm not living under the same roof until we settle this whole abuse issue. There are many others I could throw out there, but you get the idea. This is not an excuse for bad behavior. And there's been a whole series. In fact, I looked it up on an online. It was exactly almost 10 years ago where we did a whole series on forgiveness and what that means. So I encourage you to dig back through wordserve.org and look about 10 years ago for the forgiveness series. If you want to talk about that, guess what? There's groups. There's a book. There's me. I will sit down with you, buy me a couple of cups of coffee. I'll, tell, I'll listen to your story. I'll help you find the way that you forgive from your heart or, or, and, and if I can't, I'll walk beside you until Jesus answers that question. That's probably better advice. Uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a person. 
But folks, here's what I would say to us today. Maybe it's time that we took the words of Jesus seriously. Maybe it's time that we understand the amount of debt that we owe that we can never repay. Let that sink in for just a second. We too often gloss by that. Let that sink in. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. Bad news. But I got good news. That debt has already been paid. Question is, what do we do with the grace we have been given? If we have freely received, should we not freely give? Let's pray. God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for grace that is free and available to all who believe. God, we're reminded at the same time that while this grace is free to us, it wasn't free to you. It cost your son his life in a very terrible and painful way. But it was a price he was willing to pay. The price he was willing to pay because of his love for us. And for that, God, we are eternally grateful in words that we can't even express. God, because of that love, you empower us to love in the same way. Not to excuse bad behavior. Jesus didn't do that. He called it out. But he called it to a higher place. He offered people a path of reconciliation, not so that they could keep doing what they'd been doing wrong, but so that they could lift themselves into a little higher place. By your grace, by your forgiveness, by your guidance, by our access to the most wonderful counselors of all time, including your son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. God, there should be no reason that we don't have access to this. The only reason that we wouldn't run this race well is because we failed to take action. So God, move us. Move us to action. Move us to forgive, not with our limited resources, but with your unlimited grace and mercy. And God, may we all be one in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.